Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, Agile is the right approach for DHS's science and technology hot list. Actionable items is really what they, they need to go after. Uh, you know, have some quick wins in the early part of this. Demonstrate to the components that this is a viable process, that you can really deliver mission capabilities. Uh, and it's not just like a, something that's going to sit on a shelf. Technology's changing everything about weapon systems, even what we should call them. I've been telling people that the F-22 and the F-35 are misnamed. Because they're not F's, they're F-B-E-A-R-C-E-W-A-W-C-S 22s and 35s. And building blocks for success for VA's Electronic Health Records Program. We have an opportunity to take the lessons learned from the early electronic health records management implementations to assure white glove hands-on help to frontline clinicians medical center administration staff, and others that need to succeed and to deliver with increased velocity moving forward. It's Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Army's Cyber Chief and Chief Information Security Officer is moving to the office of the Secretary of Defense. Major General Matt Easley will become the Deputy Principal Information Operations Advisor to Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. He's been the Army's Director of Cybersecurity since August 2020. The Chief Innovation Officer at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is blasting his agency and government more broadly on his way out. Sultan Megji writes, quote, the federal bureaucracy is both hesitant and hostile to technological change. He says staff pushed back on ending the use of things like fax machines and physical mail. You can read more on these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Nominations are open now for the best bosses in federal IT. We want to honor the CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, and other technology leaders that are driving modernization and innovation around the federal government. You can file your nominations now. We'll put out the list of finalists March 28th, and you can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Department of Homeland Security is calling on the scientific and technical communities for solutions in 17 research and development areas. Those 17 areas fall under six broad themes. Chris Kemiski, CEO at Kemiski Strategic Solutions, he's former acting undersecretary for management at the Department of Homeland Security. Chris, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. This is one of these things that when I read it, I could tell it was important, but I wasn't sure why. And so when I saw you posted on LinkedIn that it was important, I figured I'd ask you. Thanks for coming on, Chris. Why is this important? Well, thanks for having me on. I think it's important because the department, while they've always had a science and technology directorate, they really haven't been able to kind of orchestrate across the components of DHS a clear and consistent strategy for research and development. So I think that by having this in place and looking at the kinds of emerging technologies that are coming on in these categories, uh, they really do need to be much more structured and utilize what's at their uh, uh, at their fingertips, which is the FFRDCs and the universities and really the, the uh, powerhouses that are out there that can drive a lot of this positive change. This is known as the long-range broad agency announcement, and the announcement says it's an open invitation, as I mentioned, to the scientific and technical communities to propose novel ideas that address components' highest priority operational needs. What does that mean to the organization in the scientific or technical community that DHS expects it to offer to them? 
Well, I think it's going to be a, a better utilization of the expertise that's out there uh, across the country, pr primarily. When you look at the uni universities through the centers of excellence or the national labs or the FFRDCs that they have access to, it's really trying to draw on all that strength, uh, particularly in the research and development in these categories and saying, okay, for the components at DHS, like the Secret Service or uh, Customs and Border Protection, you know, what things do they need? Is it wearable canine? Uh, capability? Is it uh, better technologies uh, for countermeasures uh, at the White House? You know, there are different uh, mission set requirements that they'll they'll have. And I think it's trying to orchestrate this in a much more effective way uh, so that, you know, you really take advantage of those, um, uh, those people, those folks out there. How does something get on this list in the first place, Chris? Is it just a matter of a component or DHS as a whole saying we don't have this and we need it? Or is it a matter of we have this, but we'd like something better? Or how does that process work? Yeah, good question. So I think that what they're trying to do from a macro perspective is tie it to the mission sets. And, you know, there's a QHSR, a Quadrennial Homeland Security Review, that's going to be issued this year. They're trying to make sure that they're synchronized closely with that. Beyond that, it's looking at the, the missions of each of the eight operational components of DHS and then saying, okay, for each one of you at CISA, is that, does that mean, you know, artificial intelligence and quantum computing? You know, what is it that you're looking for versus, um, you know, when you're on the aviation security side with TSA, what does the checkpoint of the future look like? So they're really trying to, I think, customize it based on those missions. The six uh, focus areas that I mentioned are securing aviation, securing borders, securing cyberspace, preventing terrorism, protecting from terrorist attacks, and managing incidents. Uh, it sounds like they're getting at all of the core functions of the Department of Homeland Security, Chris. How would you, in your experience, propose evaluating the ideas that uh, these organizations bring to DHS? Yeah, and that's an important layer that S&T, the science and technology director, has been trying to augment in recent years, where it's not just what they think is the most important set of issues, but it's really asking the components and saying, fill the pipeline for us at S&T with the most important mission requirements that you've got and let us help you. And that's a real uh, sea change for S&T. And I think it's brought it to the point where the components see the value of that headquarters directorate as additive as opposed to, hey, look, the headquarters is here to get in our way mm -hmm. of the mission. Yeah. Uh, what continues that value? What would you like to see S&T do? What would you like to see HQ do more broadly in order to continue to be that value add instead of more of an obstacle, at least in the perception of the components? Yeah, I think that uh, they've got a, a paradigm now that they've developed over the last couple of years that really takes it from A to Z all the way through that pipeline, from, you know, idea or concept that the component has all the way through to, you know, tech commercialization potentially. And so I think it's really just making sure that you can show the components that, you know, there's a pathway here to actually get the requirements filled and the capability in the field in most cases. Mm -hmm. And if S&T can show the components that, I think that they'll want to utilize them much more effectively. Is there anything that DHS can do to speed this process up? The, the process of getting these technologies uh, or, you know, becoming aware of them as they're asking here with the LRBAA and then moving from that uh, kind of proposal or demonstration yeah. to actually putting the technology in the field. Yeah, I, I think as, as you're alluding to, they cover a lot of ground with these uh, six categories. And what I think that they're trying to do is, you know, come back with specific examples in the, the mission sets uh, within the components and saying, okay, what's the top three priorities that you've got in cyber? 
uh, and let's move on that. And then let's match it against you know, the centers of excellence or the national labs or FFRDCs potentially that have expertise in those areas, partner them with us, look at you know, businesses that are doing this effectively uh, and try and get all of that uh, in one space so that you can have a, a real uh, advancing of the capability as opposed to just like, okay, we know that Lawrence Livermore has this, that MITRE has another piece of it, really getting them all together. And I think the, the components will see that value. Um, any unintended consequences here? Anything that is a potential bump in the road that uh, either S&T or the organizations that would like to work with S&T that have proposals for them should think of uh, as they move forward in this process, Chris? Yeah, I think that uh, actionable items is really what they, they need to go after. Uh, you know, Have some quick wins in the early part of this. Demonstrate to the components that this is a viable process that you can really deliver mission capabilities. Uh, and it's not just like a, something that's going to sit on a shelf, you know, some esoteric science and technology R&D project, uh, really driving that out and saying, you know, in aviation security, this is a, a real product that was delivered as a result of this process. And I think that uh, the components really, really want to engage uh, much more so than they've done in the past. Chris Kemiski, great insight as always. Thanks for explaining why this is important because I, I, <laughs> I knew there was something there. Didn't know what it was. Thanks for the insight, my friend. Thank you. You can read more about what DHS is looking for in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency has different cloud computing problems than other organizations. You'll learn how the NGA is solving them on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. Chris Johnson is Deputy Chief Technology Officer at NGA. He's here on the Thursday show. It debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The F-35 program has new hardware that will make the aircraft easier to fly and easier to maintain. The new hardware means the old hardware that caused problems for the program is gone. Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, U.S. Air Force, retired as dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Dave, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. What do you see as far as this change of this hardware goes moving from ALIS to ODIN? What difference does that make in the cockpit based on your experience as a pilot? Welcome, sir. Well, thanks, Frank, Francis, for having me uh, back on the show. Um, with respect to shifting from Alice to Odin, um, what it really means from the pilot's perspective um, is that it results in uh, a much quicker ability uh, to conduct maintenance debriefs. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> that uh, Odin hardware allows maintenance debrief times two and a half, about two, two and a half times faster than the current uh, hardware with, uh, with Alice. Uh, now, you might not think, when you say, okay, well, it's a maintenance debrief. What does that mean to the pilot? Mm -hmm. well, what it means to the pilot is that that airplane can get turned, um, fixed more quickly, or if there's nothing wrong with it, uh, back into the, into the flight schedule after being refueled and, and readied. Uh, so maintenance is a big part of what affects uh, <clears throat> how the pilots operate. Uh, and so it's, it, it's good news uh, that the, the older system, Alice, is being replaced by Odin, uh, and it's a welcome move from the pilot's perspective. I'll ask you then to climb down from the cockpit, go back into the commander's officer, and I imagine this also means then you're going to have your pilots up in the air more often. You're going to have the planes operating at full capability more often. 
and you're going to therefore be more lethal more often. Am I reading all of that right, Dave? No, that's absolutely correct uh, because some of the problems now, now remember Odin is an, was one of the originally designed systems. So, um, you know, it's been crippled by outdated technology, which introduced false alarms, laborious data entry requirements, and some clumsy interfaces. And, and, and so these are all things that, that Odin fixed, but as you say, the real result is increased aircraft availability. Um, and, and so that's a good thing from the pilot's perspective, as well as the, the commander of the outfit's perspective, because he or she can generate more combat power quicker. From a commander's perspective, too, I imagine it's helpful to know that as uh, software capability and hardware capability evolves, you can get that capability into that aircraft that five years from now or 10 years from now, because these aircraft are going to be in the air for a while, it sounds like. Yeah, and, no, and that's a, it's an excellent point, Francis, that people sometimes miss is you're not just designing for today. You're designing for the life cycle of that equipment. Um, and the F-35 is going to be around, I dare say, uh, approaching the end of the century. So the Odin hardware is uh, a smaller and lighter than previous air um, hardware in uh, its lower cost. And it's designed to run, and, and this is important, it's backwards compatible with the Alice software. And it's been designed <clears throat> to have capability for future software applications. And uh, that's a that, that's a smart way to design a system like this. More broadly, Dave, how has software and and hardware like these systems we're discussing changed the way that a pilot flies or that a warfighter fights? Um, it's a it's a magnificent question that people who are in the business, like myself, have just you know you watch evolve over a period of time, uh, but the changes are absolutely dramatic. Um, when I first started flying the F-15, it had a 64K computer in it. Okay, now most people don't know that. K stands for kilobytes. Yeah. Not megabytes, not petabytes, not kilobytes, okay? Uh, your average phone today has over 200 gigabytes, and it can hold up to a, a one terabyte of information. Well, it's the same way with the computers that have been advanced inside these aircraft. So we've come a long way. All right, great. So that's an abstract change in, in dozens and dozens of order of magnitude, if not hundreds of orders of magnitude, greater uh, computational capability. What does that do for the pilot? Well, what it does is, and, and let me give you an example. All right, I'm a, an air-to-air -air pilot. So in my uh, 1974 vintage F-15, um, it's got a cosmic radar, at least for the 1970s. But I've got to position the radar. I've got to acquire the target manually on the radar screen. I have to, in my head, do the computations in the context of when I'm going to be in range to employ one of the spectrum of missiles that I carry. Uh, and so everything, meanwhile, I'm flying the airplane uh, manually. If you now fast forward to a 2000s era F-22, um, all those things that I did manually in my head or mentally in my head 
are done automatically by the software and the computer. So I don't have to designate targets. The computer and the radar interface have already identified not just one target that I happen to lock onto, but all the available targets. And they already are prioritized in terms of engagement perspective. The airplane's telling me where I need to fly to optimize my engagement. Uh, and really, all I'm doing by hitting the pickle button is consenting to what the software and the computers have already figured out is the optimal way to employ the weapons I have against the array of targets. So I, I hope that makes uh, some sense in a, in a real world example. No, that makes perfect sense, Dave. And, and it explains why I hear the stories anecdotally of men and women getting out of the cockpits of the F-35 and say, I've never flown anything like it. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen because the progression of technology when that technology functions in the way that it's originally intended to function, um, the technology that's available to those pilots is just absolutely, it's got to just blow these people away. Well, let me, Francis, if I may, you know, for many years, actually for 20 years, I've been saying this is we really, the air force or the military writ large needs to reconsider the traditional naming nomenclature for aircraft. You know, we designate them as Fs for fighters, B for bombers, C for cargo, <clears throat> E for electronic, so on and so forth. I've been telling people that the F-22 and the F-35 are misnamed because they're not Fs. They're F-B-E-A-R-C-E-W-A-W-C-S 22s and 35s. What I mean by that is these are flying sensor shooter effectors they have such a suite of sensors on them that these computers and the software can integrate and present uh, decision quality uh, results to the pilot. So the pilot now is becoming more of a weapon system manager um, or information uh, decider than he or she having to worry about uh, the basic functions of keeping the airplane, you know, in the air as as pilots of uh, 50, 60 years ago did. Um, and that's all a result of the computational capability of the modern communications or not communications, but computers that go into these aircraft. Uh, one quick final thought. What what should the person who's going to flight school today have or be able to do or be prepared to work on that you didn't have to do or know or be prepared to work on when you went to flight school day because of the evolution that you just described? Um, well, I think, and, and I think it's a natural evolution that, that they already have, but the ability to multitask uh, and to assimilate a wide variety of information. Now, here's the thing though, um, but pilots used to be overwhelmed with that because listen, you, you know, and, <clears throat> about the middle of my F-15 career, there were over 144 different switch positions um, that I had to know and be aware of between the stick and the throttles. Um, it got to the point where it was pretty ridiculous. Uh, and, and, but what, what, what this computational capability has allowed one to do um, is to re reduce the number of switch positions, but increase the amount of information that the pilot's getting. But at the same time, um, a, a pilot today 
has to think more about just flying the airplane and more about how to employ the information that that airplane and the sensor suite are integrating and presenting to him or her. I want to give you a shout out and we'll put a link to it in today's show notes, Dave. Uh, Love the conversation you had recently with the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall. Learned a lot from that. Uh, I'll learn a ton from you when you're on this program. I appreciate your time today. Thanks very much, Francis. Really appreciate it. And you have a great aerospace power kind of day. And the same to you, Dave. You can read more about the F-35 hardware changes in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The new CIO at the Department of Veterans Affairs is laying out an ambitious strategy for his agency's IT operations. Kurt Delbene is a veteran of Microsoft with background in IT transformations. At a reporter's roundtable call this week, he says he's aiming to make VA a leader in digital transformation in government. You know, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the VA is, the magnitude is tremendous. For instance, the VA runs the largest integrated healthcare system in the United States. As such, I think we're in a unique position to demonstrate the role technology can play in the lives of veterans and to lead in showing the role that technology can play in serving our customers. Those are our veterans, our families, and their caregivers. As we begin to uh, do uh, modernization of the core stack, we're engaged in a huge number of system transformations, a colossal number from commercial standards alone. Currently, we're updating our financial management and logistics systems. We're enabling support uh, for caregivers through enhancements to our benefit systems, and we're overcoming or over uh, undergoing a transformation of our electronic health record system as well. Our focus is on innovation and bringing industry best practices and cutting edge technology to the VA. We're also driving really hard on the uh, having a world class veterans digital experience. We have significantly improved both our veterans online customer satisfaction as well as usage allowing veterans to streamline their health care, disabilities and education benefits, payments and other information that impacts their daily lives. GSA and OMB conduct annual customer satisfaction surveys of every agency in the federal government, and they rate OIT above average on all counts. But we can do better still. We can be a leader in this space. Turning to goals, as I've said, I aspire to bring what I've learned in the commercial sector and work with what the OIT has already done to continue our digital transformation. OIT has become a leader, not only in the VA, but throughout the federal space, and I want to keep us at the forefront. At the foundation, that means working with stakeholders on a clearly articulated vision of what they do to deliver for veterans, caregivers, and their families, and then bring that and interpret that into a, an agenda for our technology innovation. We then need to develop clear plans of action that are agile and adapt as needs change. We need to have measures of success or metrics that measure end user outcomes. And then our resources need to be clearly allocated based on these priorities in a way that it's clear how they tick and tie together. I wanna become even more agile in our development practices as well. In the pandemic era alone, we created apps in a matter of hours and put them in practice to serve immediate needs. We need to do more of that. We can also build more transparency in our resource allocation and our agility moving forward. And we can move those resources around more quickly as a result. This will enable us to be more transparent externally in the work that we're doing. And will also provide critical information to other parts of the government so that they can help us to succeed. We'll continue to our focus on users of VA technology whether they are veterans, their caregivers, or VA staff members. 
This is another place where having clear measures of success are critical, as well as using technology to improve the user experience. We'll continue modernizing our infrastructure to reduce our technical debt and increase our security and effectiveness. VA's infrastructure readiness program was established in 2019, fiscal year 2019, and it guides our ongoing refresh and replacement of IT infrastructure that sustains all of VA IT's operations. By managing technical debt and providing common core technology elements that remain within our useful life cycle of those devices, we can better support our users and we can offer continued readiness and improve our security posture. Speaking of security, cybersecurity is always at the forefront. Protecting the department's information resources is a critical priority, which includes safeguarding veterans' information in systems that store, process, and transmit information. We're leveraging a balanced risk management approach to do so, just as is done in the industry as well. Here we need to establish clear, a clear internal vision for securing the organization, leveraging frameworks like Zero Trust and the NIST framework, while enhancing our compliance with mandates such as FISMA and OMB's recent regulation 14028. Data management and analytics is another key. Getting to a modern data infrastructure with great data management will help us better serve vets and leverage emerging technologies like AI algorithms that can create new insights to, again, help us better serve our customer. Process automation is also key, just as it is in the commercial sector. This includes getting great at process analysis, identifying the key leverage points, and then using great tools such as low-code, no-code platforms to automate these key processes. Turning briefly to electronic uh, health records, we have an opportunity to take the lessons learned from the early electronic health records management implementations to assure white glove hands-on help to frontline clinicians, medical center administration staff, and others that need to succeed and to deliver with increased velocity moving forward. There's a new management structure for electronic health records in place headed by a program executive director supervising three officials. Dr. Terry Adirin, Laura Pratua, who's with us today, Dr. Don Paraglia, and Eddie C. Riley are committed to driving successful coordination plans moving forward. We especially appreciate the leadership of Deputy Secretary Donald Rainey, who's actively involved in the revised EHR process as well. I expect to weigh in given my background and experience, but I have confidence in the new structure and it will provide the direction the project needs. The new structure is, is focused around change management. We're taking the lessons learned from the early EHR engagements and building a better process and product, engaging deeply with stakeholders. Technology modernization is another key. We know that our efforts are critical to delivering benefits and providing healthcare across our network. We're continually updating and optimizing technical solutions and empowering data-driven decisions, decision-making to support state-of-the-art uh, healthcare delivery. The task is an enormous one. The VA owns nearly 6,300 buildings, including more than 1,200 healthcare facilities. On average, VA healthcare facilities are 60 years old compared to the private sector hospitals in the U.S., which average 11 years old. Modernizing is a key challenge that we must face on a daily basis with sustained effort. So to wrap up, IT staff has demonstrated the ability and the flexibility of time and time again through the pandemic. The switch to telework has moved 400,000 workers practically overnight, many of them who've never worked remotely. Just as importantly, we learned that our veterans and our caregivers are much more tech savvy than we anticipated. Looking at success of telehealth and adopting apps that allow them to access benefits, healthcare, and other status updates from their phones and computers. 
we'll work to continue to push the tech leader and innovators to be a tech leader and innovator in this federal space. As parameters of the pandemic continue to shift, we'll move forward in the most progressive way possible to ensure we carry out our mission of advancing technology to reach our veterans. The new CIO at VA, Kurt Del Bene, on a conference call with reporters this week. You can read more about his strategy for IT at VA in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Thursday, the Deputy CTO at NGA, Chris Johnson. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.